0: I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the first epistle of John, beginning at the very beginning of that epistle, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The epistle of John is kind of there towards the back of the Bible, children, if you are looking for it. This first letter of John will be beginning this evening, a new series on this book A series which I hope will help us to have a greater understanding of who God is, of what he's done for us, a greater understanding of our position in the Lord Jesus Christ and an understanding which leads to greater assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus. Let us then look and read this which is God's holy word. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that we, which have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please pray with me briefly. Lord our God, We thank you that in former days you spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and in these latter days has spoken to us by your Son. We pray that now, as we come to your word, you would show us glorious things that we might grow in our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is proclaimed to us in this text this evening. We ask in his name, Amen. At the end of the Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Christ uses an illustration to distinguish between those who hear his words and do it, who, who base their life upon who he is, what he's done, what he's said, and, and those who do not do that. Children, you, you might know what this illustration is based on a Bible song, which, which many of us have learned throughout our lives, adults perhaps. As I quote this, you will remember it and you'll know it yourself. It says, The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. The second part of the song goes on to say what the foolish man did. He built his house upon the sand, and when the rains came down and the floods came up, the house on the sand went crash. The Lord Jesus uses this illustration to teach us that there is one solid and sure foundation for our life. This one solid and sure foundation is Christ himself. Well, this evening in our text, in this first letter of John, we see the Apostle doing something very similar. The Apostle John seeks to show us in in these four short verses the, the great significance of who Christ is and what he's done as the foundation for everything else which he is going to expound upon in this letter. These four verses teach us That Christ is the foundation of assurance. Here, the Apostle John essentially says to us that the foundation of assurance is Christ, who really is the God-man, whose gospel was and is proclaimed, and through whom we have fellowship with the triune God. That's what John teaches us in these four verses. Christ is the foundation of assurance. Christ, who really, truly is the God man, whose gospel is proclaimed, and through whom we have fellowship with God. I'll seek to unpack all of these things in, in three general headings this evening, which you see in your bulletin. First, reality in verse one, the reality of who Christ is. Second, the report. The report which the apostles made of who Christ is and what he did. And finally, a reason, the reason why the apostles spread this message and the reason why John seeks to remind us of these great truths this evening. Reality, report, reason. Three very simple things, but ones which are quite profound and I hope will Point us to the Lord Jesus and and show us more of his glory this evening. Before we jump into this, I think it's appropriate for us to get a little bit of context of what this uh, letter is about as a whole. Uh, Who the author is, why he's writing this letter, uh, what spurs this letter. Well, from our reading this evening, you've probably noticed that there's something uh, pretty prominent it's missing as far as biblical letters are concerned. If you look at the letters of Paul or Peter, you notice they start out saying, who's doing the writing? Paul, an apostle. Peter, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they announce who's writing the letters. Well, here, we don't see that. So why do we say that this is the first letter of the apostle John? His name is not given to us, but... Uh, If you look throughout this entire epistle, you notice many striking similarities to the gospel of John. Now, that gospel is never said to be written by John either, but those striking similarities are also present in the book of Revelation, which does bear the name of John. And beyond that, we have testimony from church history that this letter was written, many ancient church fathers they recognized that the gospel and the epistle and the book of Revelation were all written by the same man. Uh, they, some people who knew John or who knew disciples of John, reminded the church as a whole: these are the things which John wrote. And so we take this testimony as it is trustworthy, and we uh, believe, and uh, would confess that this letter is written by the apostle who also wrote uh, the gospel. So we have confidence that this letter bears apostolic weight and authority. It was written by John. But what is the occasion for his writing? Well, it seems that here at the time when John is writing this letter, There is a very nasty heresy which is beginning to invade the church. It's an ancient heresy and one which is pretty much continued throughout the entirety of church history. That is the heresy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were kind of a loose association of heretics who held fairly similar beliefs. And their core beliefs were that the material world, the physical world, is evil. It's bad. It was created by an evil god. But the spiritual world, that's good. That's what, that's what we want. The problem is men are spiritual beings trapped in a material body. How are they supposed to escape that? Gnostics said, well, you need special secret knowledge. Gnosis, that's where their name comes from. G-N-O-S-I-S the Greek word for knowledge. The Gnostics said, we have this special secret knowledge and we can teach it to you and that will help you shed the material and and attain to the spiritual. This heresy uh, was beginning to pop up uh, in the letter of John. You can see how he addresses it uh, through addressing various lifestyles. The Gnostics, because of their belief that the material world was evil, basically had two very uh, differently Uh, diametrically opposed beliefs about what you ought to do. Some of them said, well, the material world's evil, so whatever you do is going to be evil, so do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. They had a kind of lawlessness. And other ones were severe ascetics. They said, oh, no, like the material world's evil. We don't want to do anything that's material. We're just going to live as simply as we can and try to avoid anything and everything physical at all costs. John addresses more or less both of those, especially those who are lawless. We see that throughout the letter. But another issue that the Gnostics' false gospel was bringing to the church and and making shipwreck of people's faith with was them saying that because the material world is evil, the Lord Jesus Christ could not have been true man. They had no problem confessing that he was God, but he couldn't have been a man. After all, men have physical bodies and God couldn't have that. And so these Heretical teachings, these great errors were invading the church. They were leading some astray and John saw that. And so he writes this epistle to address that problem in the church and help remind Christians of who Christ is and what he calls us to do, how he calls us to live. Finally, John's purpose for this beyond addressing those errors or the reason he does address those errors that's because he wants Christians to grow in joy, holiness, and assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells his, his readers he's writing these things, that is the epistle, so they may grow in joy. That's chapter 1, verse 4, which we'll look at this evening, that they'll grow in holiness, that is, so that they may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, and then finally, kind of the overarching purpose Of this entire epistle so that they may have assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. That those who believe on his name might know that they have eternal life. Well with those things in mind, with that general context before us. Let's go now to what the word says. So that we can see how John unpacks this great and glorious reality of who Christ is. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that brings us into fellowship with the church and Christ himself. Look with me at verse 1. We see here the reality of who Christ is. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Here, in just this one verse, the apostle presents to us the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Children, hypostatic union is a big word, big term, but it's really easy to understand. It means that the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man, two distinct full natures. In one person. That's what we say when we answer the shorter catechism number 21. Which asks us who the redeemer of, of God's elect is. The only redeemer of the Lord's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being the eternal son of God. 100% man. Excuse me. 100% God. Became man. 100% man. And so was and continues to be God and man. and two distinct natures and one person forever here John shows us the whole Christ the God man how, how do we see that he is showing us that the Lord Jesus is fully divine that he's God we'll look at the beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 1 we read there that which was from the beginning dot 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 concerning the word of life as you hear a couple of those words beginning and word perhaps your mind is drawn to John's other writing in the gospel John chapter 1 verse 1 where he begins declaring to us in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god the same was in the beginning with god the that which was from the beginning we could probably also say that who was from the beginning, as the context reveals to us that this is a person, not a a thing. That which was from the beginning is God. The beginning here that John speaks about, commentators argue about what it means, but I think the best understanding of the consensus is he is talking about the beginning of all time. He is speaking here, of a place where only God could be, a time when only God was, a time when the word was with God, the same word who was and is and ever will be God. At the beginning and end of verse one, we see the divinity of this person whom John speaks of. But he also tells us that this one who was from the beginning is really, truly a man. We see that with these four verbs, these verbs of experience, which he uses, which are are sandwiched in between the beginning and the word. Look at verse one. He says that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Four verbs of experience tell us that Christ was really, truly incarnate as witnessed by the apostles. John says, we heard, we saw, we looked upon, the we being the apostolic we. All of these men who followed after Christ, who were there throughout the entirety of Christ's ministry, who saw the Lord crucified, dead, and buried, and who witnessed the resurrected Christ. These men experienced a true and living Savior, one who was not just a spirit who appeared to be a man, but one who really, truly was a man. They heard him, the sound of his voice, and and they saw him. Now, the Gnostics at this point might say, that's fine. You can hear God. At Christ's baptism, the father spoke. This is my beloved son. People heard God. What about seeing? Well, the Gnostics might say, you can see a spirit. After all, angels appear to men. They don't have a body like a man. You can hear and see angels. Ah, but John says, we didn't just hear and see the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked upon him. We, we observed him. We perceived him as he truly was, and, and we touched him. We saw the Lord Jesus Christ lay his hands upon the little children to bless them. When Christ was resurrected and and came to the apostles, we saw the Prince of the nails in his hand and feet. We were able to touch him. Peter could say, "As, as I lay sinking in the sea, Christ reached out and grabbed me. They touched Christ because he was true man. This is the reality which John presents to us in this text. The Lord Jesus Christ was and is God and man, and he always will be. Dear saints, think of what a glorious and marvelous truth this is. The one seated at the right hand of God the Father is a man like you, yet without sin. Your great high priest who intercedes with you knows your weaknesses because he is a man. A man sits upon the throne in heaven to a man has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, not a man like we are because he's the God-man, but he is truly a man. This ought to give us great hope and assurance before the Lord Our Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. Well, John probably could have just left it at that and then jumped straight down to verse five and talked about the message which they heard from him, but he doesn't, does he? No, John also wants to remind us of the report of Christ, the apostolic report of who Christ was and what he did. And that is the second thing which we see here in verse 2, the report of what Christ did. This is an eyewitness report. Look at what verse 2 says. John writes there, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You'll notice here that this verse is bookended by this term made manifest The Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to man. He didn't come in secrecy. It is not as though he he appeared like a thief in the night, snuck around for 30 years, and then ascended to heaven. No, Christ's ministry was public. His teaching was public. His proclamation that there is salvation in none other but me was very public. John reminds us this evening of that great truth. Christ was made manifest was incarnate, became man, and lived his life among us. John says, again, we, meaning the apostles, saw it and testified to it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul speaks of all of these witnesses. There were over 500 of them who witnessed Christ, the risen Christ especially, First 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that he delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Christ was witnessed. This manifest Christ was witnessed by more than 500 people. Now, if you were to go uh, into a courtroom with 500 or so witnesses of an event, I don't think you would have a problem convincing a jury of what actually happened. In fact, I don't think that the court would allow for all 500 witnesses after the first couple. I think they'd probably say, that's enough. We get the picture. There were over 500 witnesses, and and they testify here. That's That's what John says. We testify to you. We give an eyewitness account. This is courtroom language of the very truth which we have seen. John is essentially saying to you this evening, Christ Jesus was truly incarnate, really did become a man. This is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've seen it. So we're telling you about it. We listened to the words of Christ. We know that he lived a perfect sinless life in our behalf. We were there when he was betrayed. We know that he was tried. He was crucified dead and buried. He bore the wrath of God upon the cross in our behalf and he was raised for the dead for our justification. We testify to you these things. This is the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. The God-man has made atonement for your sins. This is the testimony How do we see that that's the testimony? Look at the second half of verse two. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest. This is an eyewitness report, eyewitness testimony. This is the report of the eternal life. Now, so often, uh, when we speak of having eternal life, I think we're thinking that when we die, we will spend eternity with God that our bodies will be raised and we will be reunited to them yes and we'll we'll spend eternity with God as as resurrected people but when we think eternal life it seems that most of the time we're thinking of a span of time what John says here in this text when we think of eternal life we ought to also be thinking of a person we ought to primarily be thinking of a person because it is only through union with Christ who is the eternal life that we have hope of eternal life. We can be assured of eternal life the span of time when we have faith and the one who promises to give us eternal life and who really does do that. Christ is the vine and we are the branches and when we are united to him by faith the eternal life which he has, he gives to us so that we will never die. This is the glorious report, the eternal life which was with the Father, Christ, was made manifest to us. John continues then, after having told us of this grand reality, after having reminded us of the apostolic report, the gospel of Christ he tells us the reason why this was proclaimed throughout the earth one of the reasons look at verse 3 and 4 John writes there that the life was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The reason which John gives for why he wants everyone to know this glorious truth, he wants them to have fellowship with the triune God and to have increase of joy. The result of the proclamation Fellowship and joy. We see that this is is the reason, is the result because he says so that he he uses the word. This the whole reason we did all of these things is for this reason in particular, so that so that you too may have fellowship, communion with the body of Christ, with the saints, with the apostles even. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church make a big deal about having what they call apostolic succession. Their bishops were ordained by a bishop who was ordained by a bishop who was ordained all the way back to the apostles. They say, we have apostolic succession. What John says here is there's fellowship with the church, apostolic succession by holding to the truth of the apostles as written in the scriptures. We don't need somebody who was ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody. What we need is the very truth of God which the apostles report to the church. And when we understand the true gospel, when we understand who Christ is, when we believe it, we have fellowship with the church. This is also an amazing truth. Real, true fellowship. Not just an acquaintance with people who believe, but communion with them. Have you ever had the experience of going and visiting another church? And even though you've never met any of these people before, after the service, uh, people are shaking your hand and welcoming you. Or you meet somebody out in public while you're reading your Bible. They come up and say, I'm a Christian too. And you immediately have a kind of connection Because we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with the triune God. John writes, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, we have union with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have communion with the triune God. You might be saying, Well, Yes, the Father and the Son are mentioned here. Where's the Spirit? Well, I think it's better to potentially see the Spirit where he isn't than to definitely miss him where he is. But here, I think it's important for us to understand that the Spirit is the one who applies Christ's work to us. And so, wherever we see union and communion with God, there implied is God the Holy Spirit. Though he may not explicitly be written about here, because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is there as well. And isn't that just like the Holy Spirit? That when he is inspiring John to write this letter, he doesn't point to himself, but he makes much of the Father and the Son. We have fellowship with the triune God. And more than that, John wants us to have Joy. Verse four, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy. Perhaps your translation says your joy. I think our joy is probably a better understanding because it's the joy of the whole church when someone has communion with God. Parents, is there any greater joy than seeing your children place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Husbands, is there any greater joy than seeing your wives grow in their faith? Wives, is there any greater joy than seeing your husbands grow in their faith? We have great joy when we see others growing in fellowship, in communion with God, and and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John wants his readers to have great joy. He writes these things about Christ, to point us to Christ so that we may have joy in Christ. He writes these things so that in our fellowship with Christ, we have great joy for ourselves and in having fellowship with one another and pointing each other to Christ, we have even more joy by seeing each other grow in faith. So we see then this great truth, these great truths, about the reality of who Christ is and the report that the apostles made and the reason for why John is writing these things, what do we do with them? Just a few points of application as we close here. What do we do with this? I think first we ought to ask ourselves the question, who do I say Christ is? Who do you say that Christ is? People in our age answer this in many different ways. Some say, well, he was just a man. They ignore the fact that he is... Holy God. Some say, well, I think he was a great teacher. Gave us some excellent examples for life. Some might even confess that he's a great prophet. The truth which John reveals to us tonight, the truth which we we must submit to as is the very truth of God is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the God man, the only savior for God's people. Who do you say that Christ is? Do you agree with what the scriptures say or Do you just brush that off? I would encourage you to examine these scriptures more fully, to read the rest of the book of John, to ask the Lord to reveal to you who Christ truly is in his word. Second question, do you have assurance of salvation? We've said that kind of the theme of this entire book is assurance. Uh, Many Christians struggle with Assurance. The Westminster Confession acknowledges this. It says you don't have to have assurance to be a true Christian. In fact, some Christians rarely ever have assurance. Joel Beakey writes of several uh, causes for lacking assurance. I think he's very insightful here. I'll just read a couple to you. One is some Christians don't have assurance because they have a very conscious awareness of sin, especially indwelling sin, very tender conscience. and Some have false conceptions of God's character, of the gospel some lack clarity on justification by faith some have been disobedient and backslidden some are ignorant of what constitutes evidences of grace in their life and some people simply possess a doubting or negative disposition it's very easy to doubt your assurance when you look inward and all of these things which which listed here Come from a person looking at themselves. A negative and doubting disposition. Well, I just don't know that God could save somebody like me. Or a life of disobedience and sin. Well, you know, I know God says not to do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway because I really enjoy that. False conceptions of God's character of the gospel. Well, I just have to try harder to do better and then, and then God will be pleased with me maybe. All of those are looking to self for assurance. What John points us to here in the very beginning of the epistle, the foundation of assurance, the Lord Jesus Christ the solution here is to look to Christ, to trust in Christ. To say, "Lord Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me, Lord. Show me your great power." Look to Christ and trust in Christ. And in doing that, practice communion with God. What does that look like? These are very simple things, which we all know, but which can very often be hard to put into practice. Things like reading your Bible regularly and not just flipping open to a different page each day and reading a verse and saying, well, that's my verse for the day. Read through the whole Bible Study it. Learn of it so that you know who God is and what he's done, what he wants you to do so you see the character of God, so you see the promises of God which are fulfilled in Christ, so you see those blessed promises of Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We see those promises, we understand those promises when we study God's word so study God's word and pray. Pour your heart out to God. Remember, your great high priest is a man. He understands your weakness and your frame. He understands when you struggle with assurance. Go to him. Pour out your heart to him. Plead with him. He is kind and compassionate. He loves you. He won't ignore you. So go to him in prayer join in weekly worship morning and evening if john has written these things so that we may have fellowship with one another why avoid fellowship with one another join together worship with one another have one another in your homes spend time with each other practice fellowship and most importantly worship the lord together things, but they're things which help us to focus on Christ, to see who he is and what he's done, and these are things which help us to grow in our relationship with God. Lord willing, this great truth will continue with us as we continue to study through this epistle through the coming weeks, but I want you to remember what we have seen here. Most most importantly, the foundation of assurance comes from knowing who Christ really is and what he has really done so that we might have a fellowship with the triune God. Remember this reality. Remember the report. Remember the reason is communion and union with God in Christ. And that will put you well on your way to having greater assurance in the Lord of our salvation. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this great truth revealed to us of who Christ is. We marvel that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and lived among us. That he lived a perfect life as the mediator of the covenant and bore the wrath of God upon the cross so that we might have salvation in him. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray that you would cause us to look upon him more and more, to trust in him more and more, to take assurance in him and him alone as we seek to live our lives in this world where you have placed us. We ask that you would do this for the strengthening of your church and the glory of your name. We ask in Christ's name, amen.